Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Goodfellas starring Ray Liotta, Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, Lorraine Bracco, and Paul Sorvino, based on the novel Wise Guys by Nicholas Pileggi and screenplay by Nicholas Pileggi and Martin Scorsese, and directed for the first time on Rice Smile Films, Mr. Martin Scorsese. Welcome back to Rice Smile Films. It's time to wrap up our Turf War cast with, from 1990, Goodfellas. Just finished watching it in the other room. Uh, this this one's always a, tr- a treat for me to watch. It's just such a roller coaster ride from beginning to end, from where you start to where you end up. And I'm sure we're going to get into just how this thing is paced out. I think the most stunning thing you just said is that this is the first time we've done Scorsese. We've done Verhoeven three times, and we haven't hit this guy yet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's about damn time. Brian De Palma three times too. So yeah. Yeah. Welcome, Martin Scorsese. That's right. Excellent. So we're going to pour us off some more of this, uh, the Amador double barrel whiskey that's made in the Chardonnay wine barrels. I think we've liked this one pretty good for its nice, sweet uh, taste, a sweet finish, too. Yeah, it's been a good one. Cheers to you. Cheers, Jesse. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah. Um, really goes good with the sausage and peppers that you've been cooking all morning. <laughs> I appreciate you taking a razor blade to the clove of oh, garlic. I don't even know if I had the, if I'd had the patience to cut garlic like that, but it's the way they made it sound, how it liquefies in the sauce that I might have to try that. I guess when you're in the Huskow, you got nothing but time on your hands. Excellent. Well, I think we got a lot to talk about, so let's just get this party started with our flight question. In a marching band, that was one of the songs we had for the pet band lineup. Uh, that was one of my favorite songs to play was Sunshine of Your Love. Cream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of Eric Clapton. There's a lot of great soundtrack. I can't wait to talk about how the music's used in this in this film. But why don't you go ahead and hit us with the flight question this week? Being that this movie's based on a true story, we wanted to stay in that same space. So these are your three favorite based on a true story to silver screen moments film. So I'll give you three, then I'll do three, two, two, one, one. So you can start us off with your choice first. Number three for me, uh, this director is, we've talked about him before, and I usually don't like a lot of his movies, and it's Tim Burton. But his biopic, a uh, true story about Ed Wood is pretty remarkable. I mean, Johnny Depp is really good in it, but the standout in that film is Martin Landau as Bela Lugosi. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, it's 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 worth checking out. Uh, I've I've always really enjoyed it, and if you've had the patience to sit through of any of Ed Wood's movies, which I've seen pretty much just about everything he's made, uh, the film captures his schlockiness perfect. So that's number three for me. Great choice. Yeah, I'm going to go with the historical biopic on this one. Mm. Uh, this is solely based on performance. It's not Lincoln, although that sort of fits the the space I'm in here. I want to go with the Darkest Hour. Mm. I like that period in history. I think there's a lot of wonderful stories there. We saw that. We saw that movie together in the front row. <laughs> yeah, we did those seats back in the days when we saw movies, right? Yep. Uh, a terrific performance, and that's why I'm putting it in here. 
I don't really know what Winston Churchill was like in real life. There's some footage and mm-hmm. some, but man, Gary Oldman slays it. You know what I? You know what I wanted? I'm sure someone if I if I scoured the internet for this, I want to see a, a smash cut of Darkest Hour and Dunkirk edited together. Oh yeah. Because it's about that battle and then about the policy, what he's going through. I would love to see those kind of side by side together. I want to see that too. Yeah. If I had the time, I'd put that together. But yeah, excellent. Great choice. Thank you. Number two for you. Number two for me. Maybe this is a tease, as they say in the biz. But uh, number two for me, David Fincher's Zodiac. To me, what's most remarkable about this film is it's a true crime, true story about a serial killer in San Francisco in the late 60s, early 70s that was never caught, and they never know who did it. And so the film has to balance a satisfying enough conclusion to an unsolved mystery. And I think the film does a really good job at doing that. The The last kind of parting shots in that in that film are pretty great. But it's a procedural cop drama. It's an investigative reporting movie, and it's a true crime serial killer movie. It's got a little bit of everything, and Fincher's just... He's on, Fincher best. He's on it in that one. So that's number two for me. You know, we spent a, an evening together watching that. Mm-hmm. And I missed it when it came out. And I'm not sure why. A lot of people missed it when it came out. And it wasn't even that it was marketed so poorly. I remember a lot of hype around that. I, I don't know why. I don't have a good reason. But boy, that was sure a welcomed addition to my film viewing library. Mm-hmm. It's a terrific film. Yeah. Excellent choice. Thank you. Number two for me is The Imitation Game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kind of in the same space around that. I love a good strategy espionage film. Benedict Cumberbatch is amazing in that movie. There is a lot of internal strife and a very well-delivered character around the highest stakes you can imagine. It's perfectly crafted. There's not a bad scene in it. It's acted supremely well. That's an excellent film. I would argue that might be in the top 30 of my favorite films ever. I really? oh, wow. love that movie. Excellent. It's so smart and important. I mean, we talk, there's a lot of, especially from where we are, the Navajo code talkers get a lot of recognition. And that's also a great story. Mm-hmm. The construction and the arduous task on how to figure that out. And then what the crux is to figure the code mm-hmm. that the enigma finally breaks. Yeah is so simple it's hidden in plain sight but also so smart if you haven't seen the imitation game i really do recommend that film I, and i like stories about history yeah. like like that that aren't necessarily told in in school you know what i mean yeah like that that was like when i heard about that i was like i've never heard about this before and i don't know if you knew this a little bit so allegedly the way alan turing died was he like died of like a poison apple bite yeah so that's the apple logo steve jobs patented the apple logo that has a missing chunk out of it after alan turing as the father birth of the modern computer i actually didn't know that yep (laughs) pretty cool huh wow that's great yeah that is good choice thanks man number one for you i can't wait number one for me hey it's the director we're talking about today and easily my favorite of his films and it's not an easy watch. Like I could honestly watch Goodfellas more than this film and it's Raging Bull. The true life boxing story of Jake LaMotta and it's not even more about like the sport of the boxing and it's more about the domestic BS behind the scenes that he he kind of goes through this very abusive man and Robert De Niro gives the, one of the top three acting performances of all time for me in that. The way he transforms his body, it's rough, it's brutal shot in black and white, 
Uh, I, I love Raging Bull. That's that's going to be my number one, my number one choice. Do you like him more in Raging Bull than you do in Taxi Driver? Yes. Mm-hmm. That's, Absolutely. That's a great, great, mm-hmm. great one. Yeah. I have another question for you before I do number one. Okay. Which genre do you prefer more? Because I think we're talking about with this film and what you just said. Okay. Two very American staple genres in film. Boxing yeah. or mafia. Mm-hmm. Where are you going? They're both so good. Yeah. Uh, gosh, I might lean a little more towards mafia. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to say that there aren't good boxing movies, but um, of course not. It's it's really rocky and raging raging bull for me. But uh, they, they kind of do go hand in hand, you know. Whether it's kind of the back the back dealing, like throwing a fight. I think of Daredevil and Madeline uh, Matt Madeline yep. Jack. Yep. How he has to throw the fight. It has mob connections uh, as well. So. They definitely do go very hand in hand together. So, no, good question. I think that's why that story in Pulp Fiction is the best one too. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, with they have the watch. I think we're forecasting what's coming ahead in the uh, nightcap, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Possibly number one, Moneyball. Mm. Yes, that's a great story. And what I love about it is they didn't Hollywoodify it. They let the A's be who the A's were. Mm-hmm. They're never going to get there, <laughs> but they're going to be really close. Yeah. And you know what? As a San, I almost said San Diego Charger, as a Los Angeles Charger fan, being really close sounds really nice right now. Yeah, it does, right? Because we're miles away. <laughs> mm-hmm. But what I love about that film is it takes what was kind of seen as a hockneyed theory mm-hmm. and did a great job of explaining it through essentially an insignificant player that Scott Hatterberg who carved out a nice career for being a 260, 15 and 60 guy at best. Mm-hmm. And it's delivered so well on the screen cuz what they did in that film is where I think a lot of sports films struggle. Actors can't throw, catch or run most of the time. Mm-hmm. Save Kurt Russell. <laughs> yeah. Kevin Costner a little bit. Sure. They use the actual footage from the films that was the game footage. Mm-hmm came across great. And the the beginning is terrific. You lose Isringhausen. You lose Damon. Who cares? Mm -hmm. You lose Giambi. The one problem I have with that film is as much as the Moneyball thing was important, they didn't really talk about the starting three that the A's had at that time because that was Mulder, Hudson, and Zito, and that Mm -hmm. helped a lot. Yeah, Miguel Tejada coming along and Eric Chavez helped a lot too. But nonetheless, that's a great film. Brad Pitt's amazing. Second best Brad Pitt performance for oh. me behind Seven, another feature venture film. Yeah, he's great. And Jonah Hill's good in that too. And Jonah Hill is the best Jonah Hill we've seen. Uh, I, I like that director, Bennett Miller. He yeah. uh, came close to making my list with Capote, which is the writing of, of his one, the book I really like of his, In Cold Blood, and the true crime story-esque of that. He also did another one too that I was a, a fan of when it came out, and that was Foxcatcher with Steve Carell. So... Mm-hmm. Kind of curious to see what, what he's got kind of in the pipeline. The company too, Brad Pitt's company, Plan B, yeah. sneakily does really terrific smart films. They're not mm-hmm. looking for tent pole, four quadrant. They're okay making a 40, 20 to $40 million film and hopefully breaking 60. I appreciate that. Yeah. That's a space we both like because that's more about story than it is look. Excellent. Great list. Good choices. I want to revisit some of those ones that, that, that you mentioned there. If we ever do a sports cast, which mm-hmm. I'm sure we will, I think we need to include Moneyball. Moneyball. Oh, of course. Yeah. And then 
Look, we've been all around it for weeks and weeks and weeks Which one? and years and years now. Which one? Fincher, man, yeah. sometime yeah. it has to happen. Just yeah. him. Yeah, maybe he's got a movie coming out in a, in a couple weeks. <laughs> We're just sort of setting you all up. Excellent. Well, let's go ahead and get this started in happy hour time and a review breakdown of Goodfellas. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. <laughs> Can I just talk about Martin Scorsese's strength number one right now? Yeah. And it's his use of music. It's his soundtrack. Uh, in the last two weeks, we've had you know, a pretty good soundtrack in uh, Carlito's Way and mainly just orchestral score and Danny Boy and um, Miller's, Miller's Crossing. Crossing. Scorsese uses music to make you feel the world that he's creating. Like, I never, I didn't grow up in this time period or this uh, area of the United States, but just through the music alone, you can you can kind of feel just the tone he's going for it. And he does the same thing in um, Wolf of Wall Street. He does the same thing in The Departed, which I'm not a, a great fan of, but he he's, does a good job of using music to establish the world he's about to set you on foot with. And I can't think, gosh, that's such, such a great opening line to, to your film. As far back as I can remember, I wanted to be a gangster, and then we get that great song into the credits. It, it's a g- great way to start the film. Yeah, no argument here. And the choice of voice to do it is really well done. Obviously, that's Ray Liotta. But what I really like about this is it almost plays out as a docudrama, but a bit fictionalized. Essentially, I meant to ask you, I didn't... Go ahead. 20-ish minutes is through narration in this film. The first 20 minutes are just narrative. Oh, yeah. With young Henry. And that's not really... Uh, what most people will use as a tool in film, and it's kind of sort of frowned upon, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. But it's delivered so well in this, and where it works is because you're finding out that this is, in fact, a true story, so let's narrate it by the person that went through and did the same actions in the film that we're seeing in real life. Yeah, yeah, Robert De Niro's credited as first because he's Robert De Niro, of course, but this is really Ray Liotta's vehicle as as Henry Hill. This is his story. This He kind of takes the lead, his point of view. I'm glad you brought up the narration because Carlito's Way had that Al Pacino narration that doesn't quite work for me in that movie. It's weird, too, because if you think about Al Pacino's voice compared to Ray Liotta's, mm-hmm. one of them is a lot more memorable. Sure. And I think in a weird way, it's actually working against Pacino and Carlito's way. Yeah. And the unfamiliarity of Ray Liotta in this is working to the benefit of all of us. It does feel like, who's this guy? I feel the same way you do about narration. I feel like a lot of time it can be used as a crutch, as a sort of storytelling mechanism. Yeah. But in a mob film, as we've talked about the last two weeks, these films are so complex to their own detriment sometimes that the narration helps familiarize yourself with the players. I just want to mention this real quick because when you think narr- narration, there's one film that instantly jumps to my mind and it's one of five versions of this movie and it doesn't work for me. And it's the Harrison Ford one in the Blade Runner director's cut. That's an example of bad narration. Maybe because his heart wasn't in it when he was doing it 10 years later, but um, I think it can be a good mechanism. And I think it could also be something that totally wrecks, wrecks your movie too. You've brought up a couple times in the last few weeks, the frustration that you share in some of these mafia films is the rapid introduction to 
a huge amount of characters that are all essentially non-discernible from each other. They're just Italian bad guys Mm -hmm. or Irish bad guys. What this movie does, I think, through narration is it lets you build a nice, comfortable foundation with who the story is going to be about. And although we get De Niro and we get young Pesci and we get Paul Sorvino, we get them in a way that's sort of slow and it's necessary. And here's where it's important. There are side characters that matter in this film, but not as much as any of those four. Mm -hmm. And you'll recognize them because they do a good job of casting very record Carbone. Mike, uh, what's his name? Mike uh, Steele. Oh, no, 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 Mike Starr. Mike Starr from, right? He's very recognizable through the way they look on screen, but you're not troubled with what the role in the story is and the angle that they're playing, and that's been something I feel like the last two weeks have suffered from a little Mm -hmm. bit, and this genre can fall victim to. Sure. It's narrated, and you spend the first 20 minutes with one guy, you know who the story's about, and that's what's going to matter. It's a really good choice. Yeah, it's a good choice, and and so you spend the first 20 minutes with young Henry Hill, as he's kind of just observing this world, and then as he kind of gets thrust into it, it's a nice kind of dip your toe into the deep end of this world that we're going to spend so much time with. And as I like with any of these stories, is they're always rise to fall stories, or at least when done well. Uh, so he just starts out just parking cars, parking Cadillacs, to selling cigarettes, to you know blowing up cars and in the thing. So. Um, you know, Scorsese's like no stranger to, you know, being that he kind of came around the same time as Coppola and Spielberg and George Lucas, that new Hollywood movement. So he's no stranger to the influences of European cinema. So he actually, and you're going to love this because I know you like this movie, all, all of the freeze frame and, and narrative elements, he, he kind of was inspired by Jules and Jim, uh, Francois Truffaut's film, which is amazing, by amazing, the way. Amazing, yes. So he's no stranger to the, the, just the history of cinema, but, but he kind of just gives it his like little Scorsese twist to it. And I, I like seeing that he co-wrote this movie with the, the, the book. Pelegi. Yeah, with Pelegi. Because Scorsese doesn't write a lot of his stuff that he directs. There's a, but a handful of writing credits that he has. You said something when we were watching the film that I hadn't snapped on, and you were right. When you make a gangster mafia film, they tend to be very serious and there is an element of, oh God, who's the next person that's going to die some horrible execution style death before my eyes. This movie has a river of fun Mm -hmm. running through it. And it's through some comedic elements or whether that is the ridiculous laughing bits at dining place X, Y, or Z as Joe Pesci tells another story. Mm -hmm. There is a lightheartedness to this film up to about the two-thirds mark. And then the final third is not. Pretty serious, yeah. But I think that also plays, Jesse, because mm-hmm. you've almost been inoculated to the horrible amounts of violence that might befall Henry because you've been able to laugh with the bad guys a little bit. We also had this conversation, and I'd like to bring it up now. Okay. The draw for both of us, and I think in a lot of gangster films, is the familial element that is presented to the character that we're following inside the mafia. There's always food. There's always another get together. There's always another friend. There's always another story. There's always another good time. And you create a networked family through crime and the elements of debauchery that build the mafia empire. But you almost buy off those terrible moral (laughs) lack of, Um, adherence to any social norms that normal people would do because they're so good to each other Mm -hmm. until 
they're not good to each other. Yeah. Till they're screwing up until they're ratting you out. And that's the thing that I always find so interesting mm-hmm. is was the friendship enough for you to forgive this sin or this double cross or this attempt to gain some money that person X did to the syndicate Y. And it's always no, but there's always that hope. Yeah. I always wonder watching these types of movies, especially, you know, when Maury, Maury's wigs, when he screws up later and, you know, at the 11th hour, if you kind of are like, you know what? I apologize for what I did and you don't have to pay or I take it back. Everything it's too late. Their mind's already made up what they're going to do with you. And that's kind of the the dangerous world that these that these characters live in. And I like how that's set up. I mean, you cross one and you're kind of wrecked for the rest of your life. The first time I saw The Godfather, the first one, mm-hmm. I left that movie thinking, if you would just stay loyal to the organization, they'll have you. The problem is nobody else is loyal in the organization. Overtly, they are, but clandestine style back room they're not there's another angle or another hustle or another theft that they're engaging in if you just stay loyal nobody will do anything to you but if you just stay loyal there's no money really to be made because you have to give most of it away to the dawn Mm -hmm. look the idea of the mafia is based on the feudal ties of the high middle ages to the renaissance Mm mm-hmm it's the Lord, the Lords, the na- the nobles. It's, it's that same feudal structure. And essentially, inside the mafia world, the Don is the king and the Capos, which would be the, the lords and ladies that own the neighborhoods, mm-hmm. are built on that same feudal structure, birthed from Italy, just carried over to the new world. It's the same thing. Yeah. Nobody argues that the feudal or the manorial structure was one where the underlings did well for themselves. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at it historically, this has the same impact on the people involved in this mafia, but everybody's friendly. Everybody goes to everybody's christening and baptism and wedding, and it all seems good. And maybe there's the hope that you can get ahead by playing by the rules. But the answer again always is no. Mm -hmm. Go with that. Like So thoughts about the familial or the mafia um, allegory that's so intriguing. Well, you said the first one is the food. These, especially the, this film, more more than the, my favorite. One of my favorite scenes in The Godfather is when, uh, oh my god, why can't I remember his name? Uh, Clemenza mm-hmm. is showing Michael how to cook spaghetti for a large group of people. Like I, I just love the way he demonstrates that for him. And then in here, all the cooking scenes, it's very business. Later, let's eat as a family first, and yeah. you kind of see those ties. And just just kind of the, the the loyalty to you know someone's pinch. So Henry um, get, gets caught for selling the cigarettes, but they're able to get him out. And I think a couple important things happen in that. And one is Jimmy Robert De Niro tells him never rat on your friends, and you always keep your mouth shut. Which is like at the very end, it's the opposite of what he's going to do to the exact same character, which is pretty pretty important. And then, like you said, the christening, we're there for everything. As soon as he gets out, there's the whole family ready there. This, it's almost like a, mm-hmm. um, it's the coming of age moment. It's the, it's, it's like the graduation officially into the family. And it's, it's, it's poignant there at that moment in the film that we transferred to adult Henry Hill played by Ray Liotta. Yeah, Jesse's talking about young Henry Hill gets busted or popped slinging cigarettes mm-hmm. on the street corner. 
and he goes before the judge and the judge gives him whatever punishment is. He comes out of the courtroom and here's the whole mafia clan mm-hmm. with open arms celebrating his, as Paul Savino says, his cherry getting popped. Yeah. He's no longer virginal in the criminal world, I suppose. Yeah. And it's this great moment where he doesn't rat, he doesn't squeal, he doesn't do any of those things. And we don't know what a big moment that is for Henry. But if that goes the other way and 16, 15-year-old, 16-year-old Henry succumbs to the pressure put on him by the justice system, and they might just do him in right there. Yeah, right there. As soon as he walks out. But instead, it's welcome him with open arms and think about that. Loyal to us insofar as it serves our needs because I'm probably not going to repay that favor to you going down the road. Mm -hmm. And that's the crux of it. Can you love your family and have your family love you enough that they'll forgive your sins? And the answer's going to be no in this genre, no matter how many times you try to outthink it or outwork it or outangle it. But that's what I love about it. Excellent. Yeah. And the characters are all, they all have their own sins. So what makes this film, I think a lot more interesting than a lot of the other genres is because it's peppered with so many interesting characters. First of all, probably being, Joe Pesci as Tommy DeVito. You know, it's a good story. It's funny. You're a funny guy. What do you mean? You mean the way I talk? What? It's just, you know, you're just funny. It's, you know, the way you tell the story and everything. Funny how? I mean, what's funny about it? Tommy, no, you got it all wrong. Oh, oh, Anthony. He's a big boy. He knows what he said. What'd you say? Funny how? What? Just... You know, you're, you're funny. <laughs> you mean, so? let me understand this, because I don't, you know, maybe it's me, I'm a little fucked up, maybe. But I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. I make you laugh. I'm here to fucking amuse you. What do you mean funny? Funny how? How am I funny? I'm not just... You know how you tell the story? What? No, no, I don't know. You said it. How do I know? You said I'm funny. How the fuck am I funny? What the fuck is so funny about me? Tell me. Tell me what's funny. Get the fuck out of here, Tommy. <laughs> you motherfucker. I almost had him. I almost had him. <laughs> I love this sequence because it, it shows that Tommy's someone you don't want to cross him. And he's going to get crossed by a couple people throughout the, the course of this thing. And you kind of see how they pay dearly for it. But this is a scene birthed out of just... What I love about Scorsese is he's got a very open ear to the actors that he works with and is willing to take cues from them. So in the rehearsals and stuff, he heard Pesci tell this story that's happened to him when he was young. Like he kind of crossed a wise guy with this thing and this guy kind of spun him like he does Ray Liotta. And Scorsese is like, really? That, that that's We, we got to do that. But like, let's do it. We're not going to, and we're not going to, we're not going to tell Ray about it. So we're just going to do it real. We're just going to see how he reacts and, I love that about him. Like he's willing to kind of improvise off his script, off the cuff to have such a memorable moment. The other one that comes to mind is McConaughey in the Wolf of Wall Street with his warm up. They saw that on the set and they're like, what the fuck are you doing McConaughey? He's like, oh, I'm I'm getting hyped for the thing. And I was like, that's something that a coked up stockbroker would do. Why don't you do that as a thing? Yeah. Amazing. Like, I, I love that. There's, That's what I love about film is it's an ever-evolving piece when you're making it. And even though we're loyal to the, the script on the page, there's room to work around that. And you get the, a scene like this. 
the character that Joe Pesci plays, Tommy, is really important to the story because I think he's the most unstable of all of the characters. But unstable in a way where De Niro's character is sneaky and surreptitiously working against you in the back room. Tommy's not. Tommy's all in. Here's how I'm going to act. You have no idea. I'm a wild card, cowboy, whatever you want to call him. What's great about this scene, and I didn't know it was all off the cuff like you just said. That's mm-hmm, cool. Mm-hmm. But you set up a, a nomenclature that Tommy's going to operate from from the to the rest of this film. When you are at a table and Tommy's talking, somebody's going to meet some terrible, terrible, violent action. <laughs> yeah. And don't you feel like... Yeah. Just for the purpose of telling the story, Tommy really is pretty close to actually doing something pretty violent to Henry in this. I know he's claiming that he's just playing with him and he's trying to get him. If Henry responds poorly to that, and in the joke that Tommy's telling him somehow disrespects Tommy, Mm -hmm. he's going to bust a cap. Yeah. And that's Tommy's character the rest of the film. Yeah. So in this moment where ha ha ha, and he's telling this pretty, this pretty crazy story about mm-hmm. him telling a cop to go fuck himself or go fuck his mother. And then the cop rolls him. And then he says, I thought I told you to go fuck your mother. And he rolls him again. And let's mm-hmm. this crazy story. Yeah. And they're ha 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 laughing. It's on the edge of going South, even in the joke. Yeah. If Henry says, what's your problem? Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden he doesn't get the joke that he's not supposed to get anyway. Tommy's been disrespected and Shinebox Tommy shows up. Yeah. And it's bad for everybody. Well, it continues on into the scene when they come bring him the bill and he's like, put it on my tab. Well, yep. that's the problem. Your tab is seven G's deep. And so he's like, what, you're going to embarrass me in front of my friends? So that guy has to pay. And then it, it becomes a, a trickle effect. Every action has a trickle effect in this movie, which is why I, I like it is that they, that guy comes and complains. And so they end up buying out his little bamboo tiki lounge and then they end up torching it. The brilliance also for that to me is as important as eating together is because that's what a family does. And that's where there seems to be peace and some enjoyment and some good times. All of Tommy's violent actions are birthed in the same process. Mm -hmm. It's all around dining. So if this moment that's a break in the hustle and the angling and the violence that perpetuates this world can be infiltrated and corrupted by Tommy, there's no getting out. Mm-hmm. I love that about this film. Every time you sit down at a table and Tommy starts going, yeah. it's buckle up, man, because who knows where this is going to end up. And most of the time it is bad. Ask Michael Imperioli, Imperioli oh, Spider. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get we'll get to that little moment there. But yeah, even in, even that scene when it's the girlfriend's night yeah. <laughs> and he's talking, they're talking about um, Sammy Davis Jr. Mm-hmm. And, and, mm-hmm. and Ray Liotta's off to say, easy, Tommy. He's just like, I get it. You said he's a good entertainer. Now leave it alone. Yeah, chill out. Yeah. So yeah, he's always just on the edge and you just don't want to push him over the edge, but you're right. Every action has an inevitable consequence. Let's talk about the women in this movie in okay. particular, Lorraine Baracco, uh, who is, I like how she's used in the movie because she's a, essentially a fish out of water character for us. We get a rags, uh, rags to riches, back to rags story with Henry. And then we get to kind of see everything through her perspective and her own voiceover which is used very well. And as it's kind of shown to her, she's kind of given a glimpse in this world and Henry's not going to give her the time of the day until they have that, that awkward dinner with just the three of them. And then she goes and calls him out until he really starts to come around her that this, this girl's got 
got um got spunk to to really call him out like that. And of course we get the iconic Copacabana one take. <laughs> you even said like, can you imagine just trying to scout a location to oh. this huge sprawling kitchen that's just and, and what I like about that is you you're establishing the world around food, around family, around Henry's respect around his gravity in this crime underworld, leading all the way up to getting a table at the, in front of the entertainer who's going to tell the worst jokes ever. And she asks him, what do you do? I'm in construction. What a lie. But uh, I like how the women are shown in this, and they even do a good job of having just a whole sequence about it. Or it's like it's like a women's day. I forget what they call it in the movie. Um, hostess party. Yeah, hostess party. There you go. Because all the women, and she calls them out on it. They wore too much makeup. They they wore all these kind of thrown together pantsuits and outfits. They look like they've been beaten. Because all these women are essentially abused by their by their husbands. I mean, they live off their dime. Uh, they all are just. It's just so rough. And that scene shows it like perfectly. So she's like, "Am I willing to take a dive into this world to marry this man?" And what, what, what do I give up in, in that regard? And the answer for her, for her character is she's all in on it to the point at the end where she's, she's involved. She's taking part in the nasty dealings. She admits a little bit later on in the film that his criminal activity turns her on. Mm -hmm. So she likes to be in the middle of it. It's exciting. And it might have to do with what we see at her home life looks like, which is very, very boring and dry. Well, let's talk, let's talk about that scene. You said it, you, you, it was one of your favorites when yeah. they just get married and it's like the very next scene. Um, yeah. She's like waiting for him to come home like all hours of the, of the, of the night. And then she's getting in a fight with her mom. Like, do you know he's not even Jewish? And then you, your father can't digest. He hasn't digested a meal in six months. Like comes home at like five in the morning and then just like, the mother just lets him have it, and, he, and uh, Henry's just like, forget it. I'm not dealing with this. I'm going back out. Just what? turns around and gets in the car and heads back out. What's wrong with you, Henry? <laughs> I love it. It's so good. It's such a great moment about what that relationship means and Henry's role in it. Mm -hmm. Look, there's a place that you can exist in my life, but there's a place, mm -hmm. and you're way out of it, and bye. Yeah. And the truth is, not as a statement on any relationship with any significant other, just relationships. We've all been there yeah. where you walk into it and someone is just, and you just think, Oh, I'm, I'm just going to leave. Mm -hmm. I'm just not going to mess around with this. <laughs> he doesn't. And in a sense, what he's telling Lorraine Bracco's character, Karen, Karen mm -hmm. is you can be part of this, but you need to know what part of this you are. That's also something that works really well in these films. Mm -hmm. Not maybe in Carlito's way, but think about the Diane Keaton character in all of the Godfather films yeah. or Michelle Pfeiffer's character in Scarface, mm -hmm. right? You have a place next to me, but it's a place and you better know it. And your mom is way out of line. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to keep this crap up, bye. What I love about that, though, just on the flip side of what you just said there, is the mom ends up saving his ass at the end when yeah. she puts up her mortgage on her house to bail him out of jail. Like, mm -hmm. they're still loyal to the family at the end of the day, no matter how much you wrong them, which is insane for me. Family, family, uh, not mafia family. Yeah, exactly. Which is kind of a really interesting juxtaposition that you just brought up. Mm -hmm. Got to play by the rules to be part of the family. Mm-hmm. I think that statement fits for both the mafia family and blood family. One of those two is going to be more forgiving with all of your sins. That's the blood family. 
but one of them is way more enjoyable to spend time with, and that's the mafia family. That's playing so much in this movie. Yeah. And I think that's a place where you and I think we spend a lot of time, whether it's writing or talking. It's sure. just a fascinating dynamic to us. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really, really works in this film for me. Let's get to the kind of probably the big crux of, of this film, of what kind of sets it in one of the many things. But whenever we see a date on screen, it usually indicates this is something major to kind of pay attention to. So I think we're up to like 1970 at this point, And... We're in one of Henry's little dive bars here. They're just kind of having a night drinking. And then in the same bar is this made gangster man named Billy Batts who's just gotten out of jail. He's having his like little kind of welcome back party here. And then, as you said earlier, walks in Tommy with his girlfriend of the week. And this guy just sets him off. He's just like, oh, my God, he's out of here. I'm going to go say hello. And he just starts busting his balls. And he's like, if I wanted to bust your balls, I'd tell you to go home and get your shine box. Now go home and get your fucking shine box. And, again, as we established earlier, this is something you cannot tell Tommy to his face, like maybe behind his back but not to his face because he just loses it. And he just takes it from – Tommy takes it from a 3 to a 15, like instantly. And there's no in-between with him. The knight is allowed to tell the squire – to pound sand. Mm-hmm. This is the case where the knight is telling the squire to pound sand in this film and the squire gets mouthy and does the knight in. That's essentially the roles that we're playing. Made man is knight. Literally the formal process that both of those two would go through. Mm-hmm. And the sidekick, the helper that's aspiring to be such, gets a little bit out of line. And again, that's that moment, right? We set it up earlier with Ray Liotta and Joe Pesci and... I'm telling you a joke, but you better get it. Otherwise, it's going to go real bad. Mm -hmm. Billy Batts, Frank Vincent, who was put on earth to play gangster, right? Looks just looks the part. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Some of these guys were just like, yeah, totally made to play these parts. Oversteps what Tommy thinks is acceptable a little bit. And think about really what he said, Jesse. Mm -hmm. Go get your shine box. Yeah. I mean, that's we're taking something that's a three and turning it to spinal tap 11. Mm -hmm. Is that really that big a deal? Yeah. But there is no three in Tommy. It's all 11 all the time. An insult's an insult to him, and he's going to pay with your life. So not, I will dish it out, but I can't take any of it. I'll say this, too. I mean, we've talked about the on-screen directors and on-screen violence and, like, who's the king of it? Like, we've had Tarantino. We've talked about him. And, of course, Brian De Palma. Uh, and I think William Friedkin and how he kind of does it as well. And Martin Scorsese might beat all of them. Because he plays it to music, so there's kind of a levity to this scene when they tackle him, and Tommy's beating him with the butt of a gun, and Jimmy's stepping on it, stomping his skull in, and there's like this jovial, kind of almost Frank Sinatra-esque lounge music playing here. He's good at it, too, and there's some really gruesome, violent moments in in this movie. (laughs) And what we're also now getting is what the movie's bookended with. This Mm -hmm. is the opening scene in the film. Is a bump in the trunk, and we see them open it and then execute whoever was in the trunk. And now we realize that it's Frank Vincent, Billy Bats. But what's important about it in its initial viewing, you just see these three really ultra violent bad dudes doing this guy in. And man, the way they do him in, he's already this bloody pulp in the back of the in the trunk. Joe Pesci stabs him fifteen times with a steak knife, and then. De Niro, you know, caps him. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's a big deal when we first see it. But what's an even bigger deal is who they've just done it to. Yeah, once we go back and learn 
the process. Made man, knighted by the highest forces that are in of the land, and you've just done him in, you are not allowed to do that unless you get the go-ahead from not only your dawn, but the other side's dawn. Mm -hmm. This is how you launch into a turf war. Yeah, big time. And that's what starts to happen now. And what I love about this movie is in be- bookended in between those two sequences of killing uh, killing Billy Bads and burying him, you have this. doesn't care who knows it. He's did, uh, did Tom ever tell you about my painting? No. <laughs> Look at this. Yeah, it's beautiful. I like this one. The dog, one dog goes one way and the other dog goes the other way. Well, one is going east and the other one is going west. So what? And this guy's saying, what do you want from me? He's got a nice head of white hair. Look how beautiful with the dog. It looks the same. They, they... Looks like somebody we know. He <laughs> <laughs> without the beard. No, it's him. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> It's him. Holy. <laughs> mm. Billy Bass. Yeah, I love. I, yeah, I love how they, how they do that. It's Martin Scorsese's mother who's playing. Is it really? Yeah, it is. Yeah, when you look at her, you're like, yeah, I can kind of, I can kind of see it now. Yeah. And I love this painting. If I could have, I don't want the actual one because it would probably cost me thousands of dollars. But I, I would love a replica of this painting. I would hang it in this office. <laughs> one dog goes one way, and one dog goes the other way. This guy said, "What do you want from me?" Oh, because uh, he's totally saying that in his look. It's it's genius. And then as they just pan over and they said, "Hey, that looks like the guy we just kind of killed it here." And mm. wink, wink, wink. And they pan to the trunk and he's moving in the trunk. It's great. It's just great how it's just set up and and paced. You said fun earlier, and I think this is fun. It Joe is. Pesci's pretty funny in mm-hmm. this, and he's right. One dog goes this way, the other dog goes this way. What's the matter? One's facing east, one's facing with this guy. What do you want? Like it's funny. Because the narrative on this picture, first, the picture is just so ridiculous to begin with. <laughs> so these two dogs are standing in this boat. In this rowboat, right? <laughs> Painted pretty well. The mom did a decent job. Yes, she did, yeah. But it's just such an absurd picture. And then we launch into this whole diatribe about it that ties back to the guy in the trunk. Mm-hmm. It's just really well-crafted and funny at a moment that's very, very heightened with the tension that we're feeling because there's a guy in the trunk and that is not somebody we should have in the trunk. It's re- I also love yeah. that in the process of disposing of this body, they sit down and have a meal at 3.30 in the morning. No, yeah, what I love about that is like, hey, we got to get this shovel, just be quiet, and they turn the lights on and there's mom in the- Waiting, in, <laughs> in the dark. <laughs> She says, go in there. And I mean, she cooks this whole spaghetti dinner at two in the morning. <laughs> like, it's awesome. I love it. Yeah, I love it. There's no room for this scene in The Godfather. No. It's totally just, they're two totally different movies at this point. Well said. But there's a lot going on here. And it's a, the, the podcast carries the explicit tone. And as Matt says in the beginning of each episode, there will be some mature language. This episode... Uh, Mm. Notwithstanding from all the others, so then we follow that up with this immediate, this immediate sequence. Even though you guys got you could dance, huh? Give us a little, give us a, a couple of fucking steps here, Spider. You're fucking bullshit, you. Tell the truth, you're looking for sympathy, is that it, sweetie? Why don't you go fuck yourself, Tom? Mm. Deserve it, by the way. Don't oh, <laughs> believe what I just heard. Hey, Spider. Hey. Yeah, this is for you. Atta boy. I got respect for this. He's got a lot of fucking balls. Good for you. Don't take no shit off nobody. He shoots him in the foot. He tells him to go fuck himself. You gonna let him get away with that? You gonna let this fucking punk get away with that? What's the matter? What's the world coming to? What the fucking world is coming to? How do you like that? How's that, all right? What's the fucking matter with you? 
I gotta tell you just a quick story. So the first time I saw this movie, I was in San Antonio on a on a music trip uh, for in high school. And we were waiting for the bus and something happened to the bus and the bus was like almost like two and a half to three hours late. Oh my god! So I went back up to the hotel room, me and a couple of my buddies and they had HBO on in there. And this was on during the middle of the day. And so I put it on and this was the scene that came on first. This was the first time I'd ever seen the movie. And it was this scene and, I, and this happened and I was hooked instantly. I was like, I got to see the rest of this thing. Like it, it the, the escalation of violence off of just uh, a comeback as you said, a deservedly so comeback. I mean, this guy shot him in the foot for he just forgot his drink one day. It was, it just set the whole tone for what I thought this movie was going to be. And when I eventually saw it, I was not disappointed because it delivered on what this scene's all about. The other thing, too, I, I want to recognize is the important role that Tommy plays in this movie. If that character's not in this movie, I'm not saying it's a bad movie. It could still be good. I think he's as important as Henry Hill is to this film. Never allowing himself to be the butt of the joke. Tommy presents a case that in this world of women and liquor and conversation and joviality, except when it's not happening because there's some violent action that needs to take on, you have to be willing to take a step back and take a few jibes. Because not only will that keep the joke going, but that's how among hyper-masculine entities a lot of relationships are built. Like you and I have taken a few shots at each other in a funny way, yeah. and like it becomes almost like a theme to the relationship. Mm -hmm. Like I kid you all the time about Clive Owen. Yeah. You know what I mean, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Now that's not saying I'm not busting your balls, but kind of yeah. in a way. Mm -hmm. That's not allowed with Tommy. And so in this moment, I have to remind everybody, he's already shot Spider in the foot mm -hmm. because Spider wouldn't dance because God forbid Spider forgot his drink when maybe it was done on purpose, but he forgot his drink and was ready to get him another one. Yeah, he just has to walk five feet this way to make it. <laughs> if someone shot me in the foot, I probably would tell them go fuck themselves as well. Yeah. Especially if you're as big an asshole as Joe Pesci is in this. Tommy is a grand, a colossal prick. Mm-hmm. And even even um, De Niro's character is like, look, man, you're going to let him say that? And he's kind of in on the joke and laughing and playing. And, oh, my God, this guy just told you this. And, man, Tommy just takes it to the to the level where there's no coming back. And you take what's a kind of funny moment and you just realize, oh, man. I love De Niro's reaction to it. He's like, you sick maniac. Like, like he's like, what, you mind? You shoot the guy? <laughs> If Jimmy, that's yeah. De Niro's character, is the voice of reason, <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> you're up against it. I want to pose a question to you. Okay, I just want to say real quick, uh, Joe Pesci, great in this film, won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor that year. It was the only Oscar this film won, which we'll talk about that a little later. Ridiculous. 
Joe Pesci had a hell of a 1990 because he's in this, wins the Oscar. He's also in Home Alone, which was the top grossing film of the year and the top grossing comedy still might be ever, actually. So pretty good year for, <laughs> for Joe Pesci. <laughs> it's a weird career for him, isn't it? Because he kind of plays Tommy in Home Alone, too. I mean, like when you watch Home Alone and it's a tease, uh, he has to bite his tongue in that to not curse in that movie. You frigid, 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 you know what I mean? It's interesting. And maybe he's only, he, he can only play that one character and he's great in, in Raging Bull for kind of playing a very similar character, but the guy does it very well. Oh, and I forgot he's in the Lethal Weapon. I mean, think about that. And my cousin Vinny <laughs> yes, too. Yeah. He's actually a really good actor. Mm-hmm. He just is... So Tommy mm-hmm. and so I forget what his name is in Casino, whatever that role he plays. Essentially, it's the same character. He's good at it. He's really good at this mm-hmm. unhinged, ultra violent, little, and I'm going to make everyone recognize that I'm making up for it through these terribly violent actions. Mm-hmm. He's really good at that. Yeah. And have you ever heard or seen any interviews with Joe Pesci in real life? He's a kitten, man. Mm-hmm. Which, good for him. Yeah. But that makes the performance all the more compelling because he's not like that. Like, he's Italian. But mm-hmm. Joe Pesci's not some bloodthirsty, cut your balls off and put him down your throat kind of. He's just he's yeah. not. Yeah. But man, in this scene, and also, welcome to the gangster genre, Michael Imperioli, Sopranos. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that here at, at, at the end, too, because there's a lot of Sopranos ties to this movie. Sure. For the... F- Three or four minutes he's on the screen. He's really good, too. He is, yeah. So here's my question for you. Okay. Are Henry, Tommy, and Jimmy three generations of the same character? The soft, the middle, and the hardened version of the same character? I think so, yeah. Yeah, Jimmy's at the top, and then you have Tommy, and then you have Henry. You want to explore that? Yeah, and I think the think the film's kind of sets it up that way. I mean, you know, Jimmy is seen very young and influential at the beginning, and then you kind of see Tommy and his unhinged nature, and to the point where he's going to be made. And the last third of the film, as you said, pseudo serious, uh, follows Henry and like Henry's last ditch effort to survive. And you do see three different, and you see three different personalities too. Um, Henry to me is the one like. You can cross him, but like he says it earlier, Jimmy never asked me to whack somebody before. And so it's just something that's just not in his vocabulary. But the other two, oh, definitely. I think the way Paul Savino's character is presented too Mm -hmm. shows those three character traits that each one of those men show on the film too. I think Henry is the calmest and most stoic. I think Jimmy is the most um, violent, I'm sorry, strategic. And I think Tommy's the most violent. Mm-hmm. Paul Savino's character does the exact same thing as his Don that oversees this family. Um, I think his name's Paul, actually, in this movie. Paulie, yeah. Paulie, yeah. Emboldens those same traits. And I love this because you, in this mafia trope, you do want to ascend the ladder. There is an mm-hmm. idea of, like, keep climbing, keep climbing, keep climbing until the Lord becomes, you know, the king. And takes over, and that happens through some coup, which, again, is a common trait in feudalism and also in mafia films. <clears throat> Each one of them has that same goal. 
got to get Polly out of the way to get there. And each one of them is showing the traits that Polly has as a sum total that make him an effective ruler. And am I actually talking about Vito Corleone and his sons or Polly and these three guys? Those both are recognizable because that's how this has to work. That's why they're so good. Yep. They're very definable roles and, and characters in both of those. Yep. Uh, so let's let's catch up a little bit here because I like what you said. It's all about kind of getting to the top, getting to the top, but then there's always roadblocks. So like one of the roadblocks that happens here in the middle of the movie is this job in Tampa that kind of goes south, and then Jimmy and uh, Henry are busted, and they actually have to spend a few years in prison. Mm-hmm. But it's not like regular prison. I mean, they live a lavish prison. I mean, they're afforded amenities of lobster and steak, and this is where they're cooking the thing, and he's slicing the the garlic, which looked delicious. Kind of seems like they're still running the business out of there too, aren't they? Or get any uh whatever shreds of business they can. I mean, Henry's uh, uh you know selling pills and trying to make whatever side cash that he can. And the prison in this film is just so ridiculous. I mean, when they have you know people are having conjugal visits and then they're getting pills paid. And then like that's Scorsese's also really good at this. And I don't know if this is a good thing or not, but like. In this film, you know, he has a couple kids with Karen, and the, the the kids are, like, just in the way of the collateral damage of what this world is. I mean, they're young, they're fully in it, and, and abused by it in, in that regard. It, like, what a way to grow up. And you really see it in that sequence when they come to visit him. Uh, he does the same thing in Wolf of Wall Street, and it, it like I said, I don't know if it's a good thing, but it, it helps paint the world like what it, for what it truly is. I mean, no one's safe, no one's safe from emotional or physical harm or damage. Like everyone takes, uh, everyone gets their battle scars in this world, in these disgusting worlds. So well said. I yes, exactly. So you would think, hey, we learned our lesson. Let's kind of like go straight and not try to like, but no, like like you said, we got to get to the top, get to the top, and then so the next thing. If the beginning of the film was like um, stealing stuff from the airport and money and mink coats and this and that. So once we get to the 80s, of course, what are we going to be doing? Cocaine. Like it's the drug of the decade. See Scarface. But what do you mean? It's been the drug of the morning. Who are we kidding? <laughs> Did five lines before we started the show this morning. It's so early. <laughs> no, but... Uh, uh, Henry gets in on it. And he's like, he's like, who did I go to? I went to Jimmy and I went to Tommy and they thought they saw it as a lucrative business. And then he gets everyone in on it. So it becomes a whole thing for them where they're going to score big and score big. They do. And I love the sequence. I, I always, I always kind of forget that it's in here, but anytime I see it, it makes me smile. And it's the Christmas party sequence. Yeah. Uh, where he says, okay, we made this big score. Everyone's going to pay more. He's being a pain in the ass because this is kind of like his thing and, and, and whatnot. He wants his money. And he said, keep quiet, don't buy anything. And this one of the guys rolls in in this pink Cadillac. It's for my mother with the coats. And that's just, they disobeyed Jimmy, the strategic man, who said, follow just one simple thing. Just hold off on a couple of weeks from buying something and then go crazy. And they didn't. And they all pay later in a great montage. <laughs> oh, boy, do they. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Polly has the same conversation with Henry a little bit later once he gets out and he says, you got to stop slinging dope because I'm on probation and I'm not doing time for you. The question I think we should ask is, is it the fealty or the loyalty that you have to adhere to or the not getting the leader of the group busted? In De Niro's case, Tommy's case, I'm sorry, Jimmy's case, Mm -hmm. I think it's, I don't want all of this attention around this 
six million dollar heist of Lutanza that we just pulled off. Mm -hmm. In Polly's case, it's I'm getting on in years and I don't want to spend the golden of them in prison behind bars. Regardless, they're going to go against what you wish. Namely, because there's no movie if everybody just is a good little soldier and follows right in line. They all they're all fallible to their own money's greed and you want more of it. Right. Yeah. So when Henry and Tommy and Jimmy assemble this heist team with Maury, the wigged sling, the wig merchant. Just real, real quick, like he's got this whole wig campaign about how his wigs don't come off. But I love in the first scene we see of him as he's getting choked out for not paying, his wig pops off. Pops it's right off. Genius. It I is. love it. Yeah. They have to use the crew that's available to them. Because using people that aren't in the crew are less loyal than these disloyal dogs that they've already aligned themselves with. So you literally have nowhere to go. Samuel Jackson. Right. I always forget he's in this movie. I know. Yeah. He's not for very long. No, he's not. But you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They build this crew to steal this shipment that comes in on this plane. And it's the same guys that have been screwing each other and Polly since the movie started. Mm-hmm. You have to recognize that that foundation is clay and they're going to do the same thing to you. But in order to even attempt to become a poly like character, you have to have a crew to pull this off. So you're damned if you do and damned if you don't Mm -hmm. add to that. These three guys are essentially brothers. They're thick as thieves. Ha ha. Literally. And they're all going to try to screw each other. Like you start to see the walls closing in. And the walls closing in are because you're trying to find the exit from the maze and the exit is this very lavish lifestyle so you don't have to play along in the game anymore, which is what Polly's saying. The reason Polly is in charge is he's navigated those waters successfully and has seen the light. Enough crime, now it's time to go straight because that's the only way to live, enjoy the life that we've led. Yeah. The problem with Tommy specifically is he loves the life so much he's never not going to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how do you walk away from it? He can't. It's impossible. He's going to go open up, you know, like a rec center for kids or something. I mean, what, <laughs> what's he going to write? Yeah, that's no way. Right. So Henry, who I think is the most sane mm-hmm. of the three, is stuck. And Theseus is trying to escape the labyrinth as the Minotaur is chasing him. Good. But the line that's leading him out, that's the thread that he's following, has been laid by the worst criminals that's ever set foot in the labyrinth. Like he's, <laughs> Despite that, you hold out hope because they're all friends and they're mm-hmm. family. So maybe somebody... Or, may, or maybe not. And Jimmy's going to have them whacked. And then we just do that to Layla by Derek and the Dominoes. Like... If you're going to play some Eric Clapton, I'm ready to listen. This is, this is such a great song. Like, yeah. as we, we have kind of personal ties to that song, but yeah. that particular coda, the piano bridge of that song is so good. And when you, when you hear it, you, ha- you just think of this scene and this thing. I always think of the guy um, hanging in the, in the freezer. It took him two days to thaw him out before they could do an autopsy. Tommy Carbone. Yeah. Uh, and then eventually, as you said, in this world, and now we're just, we're just, we got our, our, the iron in so many pots right now. And it's just a matter of time before the past catches up with you. Mm. We're going to straighten out? No, we had a problem. I mean, uh, we tried to do everything we could. What do you mean? Well, you know what I mean. He's gone. And we couldn't do nothing about it. 
That's it. What do you mean? What do you mean? Uh, he's gone. He's gone. And that's it. Revenge for Billy Bats. And a lot of other things. And that's that. And there was nothing that we could do about it. Bats was a made man and Tommy wasn't. We had to sit still and take it. It was among the Italians. It was real greaseball shit. Yeah, so the actions of being hot-headed, not having your emotions in control, they get you killed. <laughs> so I love that you brought up Layla, too, because I think that's such a metaphor. Mm. So Dwayne Allman is credit or not credited with the influence that he should have on that quintessential rock song. Clapton is Clapton and so is, so is Dwayne Allman. But that song is essentially finished and completed because Dwayne Allman came along. Now, he didn't take a lot of credit for that. And most people are going to have the Allman brothers as their own thing. And most people don't associate him on Layla because that's just Clapton. In fact, it's not. That relationship is exactly what these guys can't figure mm -hmm. out. They're both going to produce like Layla is a beautiful piece of art that has worked on many different levels and is a, a masterpiece, right? We agree. Yep. They can't quite figure that out in the relationships in this group. Yeah. If you would just not be so ostentatious about the fact that you played the riff buying the yellow, I'm sorry, pink Cadillac or the mink coat mm -hmm. and just Take the rewards of what it was, you'll be okay. But these idiots yeah. can't quite get there, and I think that sound sort of plays to that too. That you just that you just gave us. Mm -hmm. This is the part in the movie where you said like it's like pretty kind of like tongue in cheek, and we get some levity, and then like at this point, I think it's like we're like in it seriously, like for the rest, because we're about to get into my favorite sequence of the movie, which is Henry's last day as a wise guy musically scored just brilliantly because first you get jump into the fire by Harry Nielsen. And then uh, as the day goes on, you get give me shelter by the stones and then George Harrison. And then um, just so many great tunes, but I like how this scene uh, and this maybe is a tease of who I'm picking to me, the MVP in this movie is Scorsese has been editing films with a woman, Thelma Sch uh, Schoonmaker, since I think Mean Streets. Mm. She's cut every one of his movies, and I think that's why his films look and feel the way that they do, because she cuts them in such a fevered pace, the inserting of the freeze frames, quick cuts, uh, you know, going to the zoom and going to to this and that. And this scene, like, it's Henry's just so coked up on on the own product that De Debbie Mazar is cooking up his, his, new, his new girlfriend. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, the scene's just cut like that. I mean, I love how this, it starts in the morning, and we're following helicopters. We got to go pick up my brother. And it's just a fever. It's just so fast paced. Like this is just, it's just chaotic this day. 
And in the middle of all of these things he has to do, what's equally important is making sure the meal gets completed oh, properly. Favorite, favorite part. I love that too. <laughs> Make sure you stir in the sauce. Make sure the sauce doesn't stick. So I'm stirring it. <laughs> is the meal then so important because it's the one time where there's a break sure. from the rat race? Oh, of course. Is that the purpose it serves? It has to. What drives me crazy about is how long it takes to prepare because he starts at like 10 in the morning and they're not eating until like 9 o'clock at night. The whole day. So it's just, yeah, it's just a total preparation. And I, I like how the, the narration works very well in this regard. You know, we got to take these weapons. we got to drop them off here. We're going to get the product. We're going to mix it. And then we're going to start taping it to the babysitter's leg so she can take it on her flight. And it's just one debacle after the other. Uh I just love it. And they're just, and then just like the paranoia of like, there's helicopters following us. Like, look at them. It's been following me. It's been following me all day. Mm-hmm. Love it. And we'll all play this, play this little clip for you here. Hello? Hey, hey, you ready? Yeah. Listen, tell Michael not to let the sauce stick. Keep stirring it. Henry says, don't let the sauce stick. I'm stirring it. Uh-uh. Listen, you know what to do? Yeah, yeah. Don't yeah, yeah me, Lois. This is important. Now make sure you leave the house when you make the call. You understand me? You hear me? Call from an outside line. I mean it. Jesus, you must think I'm dumb. What are you bugging me for? I know what to do. Hey, you little hick. Just make sure you do it. I mean what... So what does she do after she hangs up with me? After everything I told her, after all her yeah, yeah, yeah bullshit, she picks up the phone and calls from the house. Now, if anybody was listening, they'd know everything. They'd know that a package was leaving from my house, and they'd even have the time and the flight number thanks to her. Love it. (laughs) It's just... To George Harrison, too. Oh, yeah, great song. Perfect. What is life? Mm -hmm. And at this point, it's a mess. It's total. It's in chaos. It's just crumbling around him. Your hopes of getting some money and establishing yourself financially hinges on your babysitter, your hick babysitter who needs to get her hat before she goes on a Uh, plane. (laughs) Yeah, you can see he's lost. Yeah. And the drugs and too many girlfriends and no direction Mm -hmm. that makes sense. The strategy's gone. He's literally living from moment to moment. Yeah. And what's strangely is a really structured day on how many things he needs to have completed. Mm -hmm. But he's got to survive this to be able to do that in order to finish all of the things. And again, back to what we said, equally important in all that is you got to make sure you stir the sauce. Yeah. There's no differentiation on what's important and what isn't anymore. Mm -hmm. And they do a really good job with a minimal amount of makeup. His fine coiffed hair is a little tousled now. He's pretty sweaty and looks pretty clammy, like he's jonesing and strung out the whole film. Um, or the effects of that have now taken such a toll on him, it's noticeable to us. Mm-hmm. You can see this guy's unraveling by the minute. Yeah, I love that little bit there where they're in the kitchen. She's like, I got to go home. I got to get my hat. And he's like, do you understand what business we're dealing with here? Like, like... Like we, and you want to go home and get your hat and like, and he's about to go home and <laughs> get her to get, go get hat her hat. He, this isn't going to happen unless he does that. It's great. It's just like the levity is the levity's there, but the seriousness and the stakes of the ramifications of getting caught are also there and they're busted. And I love the line. He says for a moment there, I thought I was dead. And he's like, if it was, a, if it was a wise guy, he's like, he's like, I wouldn't even have heard them like differentiating the narcs and the wise guys. But here now we have a predicament. Now we have, he's been busted. He's been monitored for months. Everyone, all the players are 
kind of wrapped up and they said, okay, we want, we want the rest of them. We want the rest of the people involved in this thing. You're going to testify. And it all kind of comes around to the lesson he learned that first time he went to the slammer. Are you going to rat your friends out now? And especially now when you have no more outs. I mean, we talk about outs and being backed into a corner a lot on these episodes and the characters, where does he have to go to? I mean, he has the, the Coke that his wife flushed down the toilet that's gone. They have no money. Polly gives him $3,500 there's no outs, and if you if you leave, you're dead. If you rat, you're dead. Witness protection's the only option at this point. Like, it's come to this. So he has to do what he thought would be unthinkable, and that's sell out his friends and family. So our final bit with Henry Hill is him, I mean, we do see one other version of him picking up a newspaper in his bathrobe, Mm -hmm. but essentially the big moment is bookended the way the film has been with him in court doing exactly what he didn't do when he was young, right? He didn't squeal the first time and they accepted him. Now he has to squeal in order to save he, his wife and his kid's skin. And he puts both those other two guys away, 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 away. I think what's important for Henry to make this decision is the death of Tommy. Mm -hmm. Tommy essentially gets made, gets knighted. And right after he's knighted, they walk him in to meet the king and is assassinated, Mm -hmm. capped in the face or back of the head. And when that occurs, it's all hands on deck. Jenny bar the door, uh, every man for themselves, whatever expression you want to use. And everyone is in full scramble mode. So they are right on the cusp of being legitimate and maybe starting their own mafioso, mm-hmm. their own Cosa Nostra. But Jimmy gets, or sorry, Tommy gets capped. And that's a message that's sent out to both Henry and also Tommy. Like, it's just a matter of time. So Henry mm-hmm. has no choice, does he? Nope. You've got to. Yeah. Do you, do you begrudge him at this moment the fact that he goes yellow, turns a weasel. Uh, Does he have a choice? He doesn't have a choice is the thing. Uh, so I don't begrudge him because it's literally the only option that he has. And because we've seen the film, this is his film, his story. Uh, he he has to do it regardless. Like This criminal thing has to come to a head at some point. Uh, but I do like the scene that precedes this where Karen goes to tell Jimmy and kind of give him the court proceedings and the papers. And then he's like, hey, do you want some Dior dresses? Mm-hmm. They're right in there. He's going to have her killed yeah. if she goes in there. So she even understands the weight of this decision that's about to be made. So there's a lot riding on this. And I like the way it's done. And I like how he gets up from the stand and is essentially talking to the camera. I mean, Scorsese plays with a lot of filmmaking techniques and breaking the fourth wall. It can't be understood how this film and The Wolf of Wall Street are essentially structured and styled the same way. Both feature voiceovers, both have these these fourth wall breaking moments, freeze frames, and structurally they both follow a rise, fall, and then like getting to like this this similar stage. They're just both set in two different arenas, stockbroking and, and the mob world. Uh, no, it's great. I think the way it wraps up, it's the only it's either he ends up the same way as Tommy or he for just whatever life he can for himself. And the parallelism in that continues. Karen's going to have to say goodbye to her family forever. Um, Maybe if something terrible happens, they'll inform her and she can know about her mom's health. But she has to get rid of all of it and go take on a new identity in probably Arizona. And to do that, then you go with what crew is available to you 
And that's this very disloyal leader of the crew, which is Henry Hill, who's been a terrible husband and father. Mm -hmm. And that's your only lifeline or support. You've hitched your wagon to a crew that is so broken. And again, you see the same thing through every familial relationship in this film. Somebody's going to sell you out, but they're all you have. So I guess you better go with it because the thief that sells you out because they loved you up to the moment they sold you out is better than doing it completely by yourself. And one relationship after another, after another, after another, whether it's the babysitter with the drugs taped to her leg that Henry creates this worst clandestine crew ever to where we finish with his family at the end. And he's just some schlub, I guess, suffering from nightmares of Tommy showing up in his dreams and capping him. Uh, Very reminiscent of inspired by the film's birth, the great train robbery of the cowboy, the bandit shooting at the camera. And we get that with Tommy. Mm -hmm. And then we get played out. And I like that he originally wanted Sinatra's version of my way, but it almost great that that didn't work out. And we get Sid Vicious's version of my way. It just fits the ending of this film. I think better. Yeah. It's not classy anymore. It's not refined. Like the beginning was, it's a little rougher. It's a little more punk. It's a little unraveled. And the film ends with that song. And it's, it's, it's great. It's, it's, a, it's a great ending and strung out. Yeah. You still look strung out. Yeah. I like how he says he ordered spaghetti and marinara and he got egg noodles and ketchup. That's so disgusting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can only have ketchup on French fries. <laughs> Literally nothing else. It's the only con- thing that condiment was made for. I can't even put it on chicken, nothing else. Did you notice when they're getting ready to bury Billy Bats that De Niro at Tommy's mom's house dumps it's, a whole yeah. bunch of ketchup on his? Uh, yeah, I can't do that. That's, What's he having that on? I thought they were eating spaghetti. I did too. Ugh. I don't catch up on anything Italian. I'm not sure about that. Oh goodness! Yeah, not even on like I know some people that do like like a, like on steak like ketchup uh, on steak. No, no way. No. Uh, and that's the end of the film. Yep, it's been a roller coaster ride from beginning to end. I have a couple just little anecdotes here to discuss. Twenty five million dollar budget, forty six million dollar gross. So it, it recouped about half of it to have of its budget back. Wonder if a lot of this budget went to the soundtrack because like. The music is just consistent. Like each scene goes into like a, a next song that is then kind of setting the tone for that sequence of events. Wait, so its ROI was half? Just half, yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. What did they make it for again? Twenty five. It made twelve. No, it made forty six. Oh, 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 oh. So it made half. I, mis- ha- I mixed half those numbers up. Okay. But uh, based on the nonfiction book, Wise Guys by Nicholas Pileggi, who would also write the book that Casino was based on as well. So Scorsese and him would would come back to collaborate. Six Academy Award nominations, one win for Pesci for Best. And I love, you got to go watch his acceptance speech because it's, he wins, he walks up, accepts his award, and he says, thank you very much, and just walks off the stage. It's so Joe Pesci. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not going to wax poetically up at the podium. Often considered one of the best mob films, was ranked the second best uh, gangster movie by American Film Institute when they ranked their top 10 gangster movies, uh, added to the National Film Registry in 2000, and was a huge inspiration to David Chase on the creation of The Sopranos. Enough so that he cast a lot of people from this movie into that show. Yeah. Were you a fan of that show, Matt? Yes. Yeah. I was. Often ranked, you know, in the routinely in the top three best shows of all time, like, Terrible final episode ending. Oh, yeah. 
but like a lot of those, I think it went one season too long. Anyway. Sure, sure, yeah. Uh, and then that's that's Goodfellas. Matt, do you have a favorite tasting note of Goodfellas? Yeah, I think the first interaction between Pesci and Spider, um, when they set that up the first time, you just see how when he shoots his foot. That's that to me is it's not the most violent sequence in the film, but it is so loaded with this how unstable Tommy is. What's the name of the movie that Bogart did? Which one? He's a cowboy. He only did one. Oklahoma Kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm the Oklahoma Kid. <laughs> yeah, you motherfucker. Yeah, it's it's great. <laughs> yeah, mine's uh, mine's uh, Henry's last day as a wise guy. Just the whole day, the way the whole thing, the way it's spread out. Uh, it's just it's a fever pitch, and it's just it just wreaks its peak uh, tenacity in that sequence. Now, what's the? Oh my- we need to take a shot of the Amador double barrel Chardonnay wine whiskey to wash off our palate. For me, it's the scene in the trunk where Tommy uses that kitchen steak knife to finish off Billy Bats. Ugh. Yeah. What a brutal way to do somebody. And that guy's not going to live, Jesse. Well, I, th- I thought, like, so he'd been stomped and beat, and I thought they had shot him in the mouth, mm-hmm. too. And mm-hmm. he still squirming around in the back and then they give him a few more jesus Ooh. oh yeah yeah overkill yeah mine's uh the next the across the street neighbor that mm. assaulted karen and then henry lets him have it with the butt of his gun oh still whips him. gruesome surprise doesn't kill him actually ah, that you would think or your nose would just be powder mm-hmm. oh. who's the master distiller on goodfellas you're probably going to go with scorsese and that's an obvious guess um, I'm not saying your choice is obvious. I'm going to just give it to Pesci. I think he's really, really good in this film. And I think the movie's still good if he's not in it, but his character as a supporting character enhances all of the other players because it allows them to highlight whatever internal conflict or traits they have. I think he's masterfully done. He's going to redo it again almost to the letter in Casino. That's almost an acknowledgement of how good this role was certainly recognized by the Academy. And we're going to get to this in just a couple of minutes with some decisions that they've made, but I'm going to give it to Joe Pesci as Tommy De Silva. I believe his name is last name. Cause he's so fantastic in this film, but there's any number of other oh, yeah. choices. Take your pick. Yeah. I'm actually picking uh Thelma Schoonmaker. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, I just want to highlight her because she makes his movies even better. And I, She's 80 right now. I want to say when she eventually passes, Scorsese will stop making movies. I don't know if his films could have the same tone and style without her. She was married. I just pulled this up right now. She was married to Michael Powell, director of Peeping Tom. So what a trip. (laughs) What a trip. But uh, part of the Scorsese style for me that works is in due into how the films put and cut together. So, that's oh, a good choice. I'm glad that you recognized no, her. The, the filmmaker and collaborator, whether it's the Coens, and we didn't get to talk about him last week, but Roger Deakins, like when he gets on board, like it's another great collaborator on the look of how your your film looks. You know, when we talk about Nolan, we have to highlight Hans Zimmer and his music and yeah. how he makes the films feel even grander than they really are. Yeah, I think, you know, a director's part of the equation. You need a writer. You need actors you need composer there's a lot of pieces to the puzzle and when you find someone that you like gets you yeah you bring them along for mm-hmm. your entire career so to that how to are you going to rate and grade good fellas we have rock gut well call single barrel and top shelf it's top shelf 
it's hard to find any arguments. It's almost a perfect film. There's not a bad scene in this. It's infinitely rewatchable. The characters are interesting. You can watch it as an enjoyable piece. You can watch it cerebrally. It's a perfect movie. It's not the best. It's not my favorite gangster film, but mm. it's in the top two or three. It's This is a masterpiece. I think it's his best work. Mm. Um, and had it not been for Godfather 1 and 2, this would be sure. my favorite gangster film of all time. Yeah, top shelf with... With a with with a slam with dunk. a bullet, yeah, yeah. with with a bullet, <laughs> with an ice pick. However, they killed Maury there in the <laughs> in the back seat. Yeah, incredibly enjoyable. Like I think you could sit down and watch this more than the Godfather and Godfather Part Two, especially those are. You got to be in the mood for those. Um, yeah. they're more cerebral. This one has such a fevered pace. It's it's a little fun or it's a little more light, which sounds crazy, being that the subject matter we just discussed. But it is true. Um. My second favorite Scorsese movie. Uh, it's just it's 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 just a it's it's a lot of fun to watch, and um, I was gonna say yeah if not for yeah if not for those other two movies that you just mentioned would be my favorite mob movie yeah but uh, we'll discuss those on on another day in another episode but that's that that's a wrap on the turf war cask I'm glad it was, we had. <laughs> All three films are so different from the next, which is nice. Mm-hmm. And maybe you can just do that with this particular genre. So let's go ahead and wrap this thing up with a nightcap. To Dwayne Allman. To Dwayne Allman, yes. Yeah. All righty. Uh, Matt, why don't you hit us with the nightcap? This one is awesome. Allegedly, this was the runner-up to Best Picture of the Year. It did not win. They don't really release those votes. Mm-hmm. You can sort of find it in the dark web or whatever. In the dark web? I guess. Yeah. Allegedly, this was number two. Yeah. So then the question is around that. So the winner that year was Dances with Wolves. Tatanka. Yeah. yeah I, that's, that's that's a hard one for me to swallow. You know what I mean? Right. Like, how many times have you seen Dance with the Wolf? Maybe once, twice. Yeah, maybe. It's just, there's just something about the staying power of this movie compared to that, but yeah. Okay, so yeah, you've set it up then. It's pick your top three best picture runner-up candidates. The one that finished second, allegedly. Essentially, the best best picture losers. Right. Yeah, that's great. First loser. All right. Number three for me from 2001, Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, losing out to Ron Howard's A Beautiful Mind. Bullshit. (laughs) I told you, I think I've mentioned before, I only like two Ron Howard movies. That's not one of them. Backdraft and what? Uh, Apollo 13. Okay. Which was close to being in my true, based on a true story, film's top three. Do you like his version of The Searchers, The Missing? No. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, on it, only two, Matt. Yeah. Uh, the Fellowship of the Ring is arguably my favorite entry in that entire series, uh, and it's just a damn shame it didn't it didn't take home the top prize. And the third one would, and that was almost like a collective, let's give it to the series now that they've reached the last one. It deserved it with arguably all three, but especially that one. That's number three for me. It's hard not to do this with the 
negative, look what beat it. So I tried to stick to what was really good, but some of that look what beat it anyway came up. So mm-hmm. previously mentioned already on the podcast is going to be my number three from 1980. That's Raging Bull beaten by ordinary people. We've talked a lot about the greatness of the 1980s in some genres. We could do a whole show on the huge insistence and misses on rot dramas that perpetuated the Academy from like 80 to 88. Yeah, so many. There's a garbage. Ton. There's a ton, yeah. There's no one in the world that would argue Ordinary People is a better film than Raging Bull, but somehow one. So that's my number three, Raging that's, Bull. That's a good one. Yeah. Number two, Jesse. Number two from 1957, the winner that year. Like you said, like uh, you, you don't want to get wrapped up in who won that year. Uh, this is another pretty great movie uh, on an epic scale, A Bridge on the River Kwai. Mm-hmm. The, the loser that year, though, I think is an infinitely better movie, and it's 12 Angry Men, mm-hmm. Sidney Lumet's debut film. Really? And, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I would talk about knocking it out of the out of the gate right there. Yep. Lee J. Uh, Lee J. Cobb, Henry Fonda, Martin Balsam. <laughs> Martin Balsam is really good. In yeah, that film. it's a great, a single location. Like, who could ever do it like that? Um, it should have won Best Picture. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's just, just, it's just a powder keg of tension and, uh, awesome twenty by twenty foot room. <laughs> yep, I love it. Number two for me is actually one year after my first choice, nineteen eighty one. Chariots of Fire somehow is beating Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. That is such an egregious sin. I'm not even going to comment further. I've never seen Chariots of Fire, so that kind of tells you that. Yeah, um, don't see it. I had it recently asked. Just watch Raiders again. I had it recently asked to me this week. This would be a great question for a flight or nightcap. They even said this should be a flight or nightcap question. Uh, what's the film you've, well, you've kind of said too, Rocky, what's the film you've seen the most in your lifetime? Yeah. And I had to really think, I was like, Batman 89's up there, obviously Halloween, but... Ah, Raiders of the Lost Ark is is creeping up on those two as well. Sure. I was more of an Indiana Jones guy than a Star Wars guy growing up as a kid. I mean, I had that we had, we posted that picture of me being drugged by my little toy Jeep. <laughs> yeah. So I've, yeah. Se- I've seen Raiders a ton. That, you know, the film's a masterpiece. Just go listen to that episode. A crime. And I think I'll still keep to my th- I'll never watch Chariots of Fire. Out <laughs> of just protest. There's nothing in it for me. I don't even want to like I'm sure it's a fine movie. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure it's mm. I'm sure it's made well, mm. but I, I know it's no Raiders. <laughs> Let's do number ones. Number one, 1979. The winner, Kramer versus Kramer, which there are parts of that that I do are all right. Okay, but it is nothing compared to the masterpiece that is Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now. Uh, I have a, I got a question brewing in my mind, uh, coming, coming up. I'm just going to pitch it to you now. That way you can start thinking about your top three films you'd like to cover in the next hundred episodes of Bryce Smile films. Oh, wow. Just kind of Matt's playlist. Okay. Cause this one's going in my playlist of one that I would love to discuss within the next hundred. There's just so much to talk about. It's a literal journey into madness set in the backdrop of Vietnam and it's, I mean, we talked about the brilliance of Gothard 1 and 2. This is my favorite movie of his. So, yeah, of course it's a crime that it didn't win that year. <laughs> right. And Kramer versus Kramer isn't a terrible movie, but, like, I think you just set up 
what we're talking about. It's more more family drama, divorces versus like (sighs) battle for the kid. Yeah. Versus battle for my soul. Right. (laughs) The soul of the man's heart. Someday I'm going to sit down and Mm -hmm. I'm going to look at all of those rot dramas from the 1980s and come up with some theory as to why that played so much in 1980 Reagan's America. Yeah. But not today. Yeah. Instead, I'll just give you number one. Okay. Go back to 1957. The life of Emily, Emily Zola. 37. Sorry, 37. Yeah, yeah. 57, my bad. 37. The life of Emily Zola yeah. somehow beats the best on-screen couple, in my opinion, of all time. That's Cary Grant and Irene Dunn in The Awful Truth. There's a lot of noise around the Philadelphia story, and rightfully so, because mm-hmm. that's actually one that we could also put in the same list. It's actually a runner-up, too, and that was a consideration for me. Yeah. This film, I think it lost to maybe Rebecca. Mm. I think the Philadelphia story is 31. I think it lost to Rebecca. Yeah, 40, right? Yeah, quote me on that. But I think that's right. So Good those are both choice. those Good are both choice. great. I've years. never seen the life of Emily, Emily Sola. The uh, awful truth yeah. is a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. It is Irene Dunn, who is without question in my mind, the most understated, forgotten Hollywood starlet. Mm-hmm. Five Academy nominations, never locked home one of them. Hey. And then we could do the same thing with Cary Grant. Mm-hmm. In what is the quintessential romantic comedy prior to when it changed around 1955-ish and became a bit more slapsticky? Mm-hmm. This has an element of that in there as well. A little more of this like screwball comedy, yeah. But not that screwball comedy that's His Girl Friday mm-hmm. or what's the bringing up, fucking bringing up baby that just makes you want to turn it after five minutes because you're just so like thoroughly like, stressed. Yeah, yeah. exhausted, yeah. Um, that's my number one. Great I love choice. the awful truth. Uh, it's a good choice. Uh, yeah, it's the, the Academy. It's it's a nice barometer of like what was good that year. But have you ever even heard of the life of Emily, Emily Zola? I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. I had never even heard of that until I did the research on this. Yeah. And a lot of times they they, they skip out on a lot of just more influential films that stand the test of time. Like, you say what you will about Annie Hall and... Yeah. I like, okay. I like I say what I want to say about yeah, that? Yeah, maybe we'll save that. Uh, but it beats out a landmark film like Star Wars, A New Hope. You know what I mean? So, yeah. like, that's it's that's tough. Yeah. Uh, and it, it keeps, like, I mentioned King's Speech against, like, Inception and mm-hmm. uh, Social, Network. Social Network. Oh, God, barf. Like, that movie's so boring. Yep. I've only ever seen it once. And we talk about 2007. I mean, a lot of people like No Country for a Man, but you don't. But it beat a movie that I think is even better there will be blood. So arguably the best film since we came to the two thousands. Yeah. So yeah, it's a oh, Pulp Fiction mm-hmm. losing out and Shawshank, Shawshank losing out to Forrest Gump. So yeah, there's just, they never get, and I think we're probably going to talk about that and we'll set up what's coming up next week. Didn't LA confidential lose out to Titanic as well? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stunning, yeah. shocking yeah. silence. Yes, there. Stunning, silence. Really, like a pin drop. Uh, okay, so that that's a wrap on turf war. Look into the mob genre. We're gonna come back to it because there's some classic ones I like to like. I like White Heat with uh, James mm-hmm. Cagney. Like that. That's a, a nice classic one. Um, Scarface, Brian De Palma again, mm-hmm. and of course the Godfather trilogy, which uh, Coppola has re-edited part three now, and he's re-releasing it. So. Maybe he made it better. I doubt it, but I'll have to check that out to see what that even looks like. Yeah. Uh, but 
coming up, why don't you hit us with what's coming up in the next three episodes? We're going to take a step to what we've forecasted a little bit. And I want to set this up by saying what's coming in the next three is episode 100 proper. There's some shots that have taken us already over that number, but episode 100 proper will be the third entry in this cask. But before we get to third entry, we need to do entries one and two. And this is films around music, not musicals. (laughs) Let's not be ridiculous here. Yeah. But I'm not even sure what we've titled this. We'll come up with some catchy title by the time we kick it off next week. But we're going to launch things next week with... From 2018, A Star is Born. A Star is Born. So not the other iterations that have been done of this film. (laughs) It's been done a lot. We're talking about the recent one with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga which is an interesting film because like like when it came on our radar I, we could have probably given two shits about it and then we went to go see it and we're like the movie was actually pretty good <laughs> so really different speed for what we've normally done i think people might be a little surprised that that's what we're choosing first yeah so i'm really looking forward to talking about this and breaking it down next week yeah that's going to be a fun one Brecht, uh, bradley cooper's directorial debut and i'm not a fan of lady gaga's music but the music in this movie is really good so maybe we'll call this cast next week the backbeats. There you go. You like that? I do. Okay, so the backbeats will be the cask that we call it. This cask is going to rock. It literally. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. All righty. So you got that to look forward to. And cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. Cheers. I got to get going. I'm going to go get my shine box and I'm going to go shine my shoes because I got some scuff marks on them. <laughs> I've got this painting at home that I need to touch up, and both these dogs have got to look the opposite way. So I hope you're going to. I work. hope you're going to give it to me for Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We'll see you all next week. Everybody, have a good week. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, be sure to leave us a five-star review. We'd greatly appreciate it. Goodfellas is property of Warner Brothers Pictures, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. I have to wait around like everyone else can't even get decent food right after i got here i ordered some spaghetti with marinara sauce and i got egg noodles and ketchup i'm an average nobody get to live the rest of my life like a schnook